You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Elise van Sliedre is a professor of criminal law at VU University in Amsterdam and the dean of the faculty of law there. She has been published extensively in the field of international and European criminal law. She's joining us today from The Hague, where she's going to talk to us about cyber warfare. Elise van Sliedre, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, When we're talking about cyber warfare, I think most people have a general understanding of what it is, but do they really know what it is? Um, Well, I'm not sure if they do, but there generally is this idea that um, we know what a cyber attack is in the sense that we know about DDoS attacks. We may have experienced them ourselves with um, emails not working or with, um, I don't know, your bank website being downed, whatever. But um, cyber warfare is something different. It's bigger and um, it tends to be uh, an attack that comes from a state or state-like entity, um, but then very often is operated by individuals, individual hackers who are either prompted or instigated by the state or hired by the state to do that. And it tends to be um, an attack that has external effects to the extent that you might um, cause human suffering. For example, if you... Um, have a cyber attack on a hospital and you may um, undermine its operations, its uh, computer system, that can cause great human suffering. Or, um, I don't know, certain military targets, say a nuclear plant, if you um, install a worm in the system and it starts to get out of hand, it starts to malfunction. These are things that really come to the, the definition of cyber war. And when we talk about people, you know, real people getting hurt, um, are there cases of that that we know about? Yeah, there are some cases, not very many, I must admit. Um, there are always, and, and everyone refers to the same, there are always um, the same examples used. Um, and one of the most um, interesting ones is probably the one in Estonia where um, after a statute um, was removed that very much reminded of Soviet history and people want to get rid of it because of that, of, of that being a symbol of a certain dominance, of communist dominance. Um, suddenly, um, a sort of whole week, there were attacks on government websites and banks' websites, newspapers' websites, um, and they, I mean, it's never been proved, but it, there was this very clear understanding this must come from Russia, and um, um, and it came from, uh, I mean, about 70 countries and uh, lots and lots of computers were affected. So um, this is one of the examples where it has that scale that um, you start talking about an attack, really. Yeah. Right. And, and um, you know, how is it regulated today? Well, it's not really regulated. That's a problem. I mean, we do have um, we do have a convention on cybercrime, um, but that's different. Cybercrime is it's more sort of it's regulated by national law, national criminal law, very often, and it has to do with uh, content related crimes. So it goes to fraud, pornography, these sort of crimes have that, that they have a purpose that's not necessarily to attack, and um, that is the only thing we have. And then there's this idea that maybe we should apply the laws of war. 
to um, attacks that we qualify as cyber war, cyber attacks. And there is um, yeah, a document, the Tallinn Manual, it's called, is a, a manual that's been drafted by a number of experts on the laws of war, and they've applied the principles of the laws of war analogously to, um, to cyber attacks. And, and do you think that's a, a good way to go? Um, you know, it's an interesting exercise. I definitely think there is there is room for it um, because there is nothing there. So it's good to have some sort of normative framework. Um, so what they do is basically extract from the laws of war a number of principles and they apply those to cyber attacks. So, for example, that you should not target civilian population, that you should limit collateral damage, uh, that there should be you should abide by the principle of distinction. Um, these are all sort of the principles of humanitarian law that could be applied to, um, to cyber attacks. But um, the problem really at the end of the day is that it's very difficult to pin down who is responsible for what. It's really very problematic how to, to find evidence of, number, you know, of the number of attacks being committed by person X or Y. Mm. So, yeah... Yeah, because when you drop a bomb, you know who generally you know who drops the bomb. Um, you can trace it much more easily. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are lots of talks about it, and uh, as I said, this talent manual that's come out of of um, an international debate that's been going on for a number of years, and in fact, I think we now will have the second volume of the Tallinn rules in in due course. So there is definitely a lot of talk, but. It's very difficult because of the nature of the criminality or the, these attacks or the crimes, but also um, um, the second point is probably politically. It's just so difficult to get states together to agree on on regulating this type of warfare because it really is a very clandestine business, you know. Hmm. Yeah. And where do the rules of international humanitarian law apply to cyber warfare as it is today? Yeah. So you'd have to um, equate a cyber attack to uh, an armed attack, right? That's mm-hmm. where it starts. And um, the International Court of Justice in its case law has indicated that it's not the nature of the attack that makes something in an armed attack. It's the scale and the effect. So there is mm-hmm. precedent to say, well, you know, we could um, regard a cyber attack as an armed attack. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, that's all, uh, it's not very difficult to say, you know, we, we're going to apply these principles to these types of attacks. You can do that problem really is when it comes to enforcing the law when you want to hold a person responsible that it's very complicated to actually um, trace it down to individuals and all states for that matter and and there is talk now about maybe adopting more sort of um, broad evidentiary rules so so be a little bit more lax in your approach to how you prove involvement Mm -hmm. but we're not in that debate we're not very far at the moment and states don't want to they're they're not very cooperative when it comes to these efforts i think some states would rather not have everything discussed openly because um you know there there is definitely i think um a practice where states use um the expertise of individual hackers but they don't want to be necessarily related to them or how do you say that they don't want to mm-hmm. be seen to 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 be connected to them that there should be an agency relationship because that could then eventually mean that they are responsible right so mm. there is this um interest in keeping this very very um covert and very very um yeah unclear to to a layman it sounds like this is completely unregulated then I can imagine it does, and maybe in a way it is. Uh, it's not that we're not thinking about it. It's um, it's just that um, 
at the moment we can't apply it the same way as we do uh, the law that is in the mm. same way as we do with regard to kinetic normal attacks have any cases been brought to a court um i'm not aware of any case before an international court i mean there are many cases before national courts and certainly mm. in estonia there was a follow-up um, in the criminal courts when they had the cyber attacks and i think there's even been one conviction uh, a Russian guy. I don't think he was related to the state. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, there's there is stuff going on, but not at the international level, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and you, you've done research on this for a while. I mean, what was it that made you interested in this, and why do you think it's important? So, I'm quite new to this area, um, and um, I really find it fascinating because it challenges many of the classic. Um, questions and issues and assumptions of, of criminal law, of the criminal responsibility. So, first of all, with regard to ge- geography, the geographic location, I mean, these crimes are committed, well, where are they committed? They're, they can be committed everywhere, you know, from anywhere, really. And, um, and also, um, you can have robotic responses in the sense you can have, you can have a program, install it, and then maybe weeks or months later, it actually... Uh, starts working. So how does that work then with who has the mens rea and the actus reis? All these elemental questions in criminal law are challenged when you talk about cyber, when you talk about automatic systems causing harm. And that I find fascinating because it really takes us into criminal law, you know, uh, to the next level. And, and we as researchers, as legal scholars need to be on top of that and need to, to engage with those issues. Where do you see this all going uh, in the next couple of years? Do you think the, the international community is going to begin to address it in a more serious way? Well, I don't know, of course, because I don't have a crystal ball. But <laughs> I do think that we are on the verge of seeing a different type of conflict. So I know that's not just because of cyber and the cyber attacks, but it also is because of different tactics and different um organizations, non-state entities, terrorist groups, you know, that become very powerful, that use a social media, that use other mm-hmm. means than ordinary means, ordinary in the sense that the classic means of warfare mm-hmm. and propaganda is, is a huge part of that. And, and uh, we had a very interesting meeting at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute not too long ago on Ukraine, where uh, you see that also there, um, manipulation of the population, propaganda, the use of propaganda, and then infiltrating in a country, not wearing the uniform, all those things to make clear that it can't be really traced back to the, to make sure that it can't be traced back to a state and a classic international conflict. And it, it's those types of, um, I don't know, warfare, I think is, is the term I'll use here. Mm. It's that type of, of warfare that really is different and challenges everything we have so far regulated. So we need to think um, uh, and look at the Ukraine as an example of, I think, how, how that can happen. Yeah. So it almost sounds like international humanitarian law is kind of behind the ball. I think it is. I think it is, to be honest. And and I do think that people realize that and, and the ICRC realizes it. So, yes, um, we need to... Um, I think get together and, and, and really rethink all these rules that are premised on a, on a classic conflict that we don't witness these days. Hmm. 
Very interesting. Elise van Sliedre is a professor of criminal law at VU University in Amsterdam and the dean of the Faculty of Law there. She's been published extensively in the field of international and European criminal law, and she joined us today from the Netherlands. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Loon, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law.